The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, we have a very lively show, uh, which I hope you all will enjoy. Um, our guest today is, is not a doctor. That's an insult. Um, Michael is a lawyer. Um, Michael Barnes, who's the managing attorney at, at BCBA Law and Policy in Washington, D.C. Um, Michael obtained his Juris Doctorate degree from George Mason University School of Law and was recognized by the Virginia State Bar Family Law Section as Outstanding Law Graduate in the Practice of Family Law. He also earned a Master's Degree in International Economic Policy in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he received his Bachelor's Degree uh, from Flagler College. And I first heard Michael speak um, maybe two months ago at the Access Conference here in Florida and was just um, just so impressed with uh, his grasp of uh, policy and um, law as it pertains to substance abuse services, the um, application of the services, the, the policies and the politics that, that drive our services. And, um, and, I, and I'm just so happy that we were able to coordinate um, time for you to be on our show, Michael. Well, thanks, Mary. I appreciate the opportunity to join you, and thanks for the kind introduction. You're welcome. Um, you know, there's just so much to talk about, and um, I guess the the best maybe place to start for our listeners is um, maybe to talk a little bit about, just in general, how policy affects treatment for uh, substance abuse disorders and um, mental health. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, you know, so much of what goes on on a daily basis is influenced by the law and policy, and that's especially true in the field of mental health and addiction treatment where, you know, societally there is a stigma against the people who have these disorders. In some cases, you know, there's the notion that someone is just crazy. In other cases, he or she brought this on um, himself or herself, you know, by choosing to use substances. So that stigma also translates uh, structurally. Uh, Our systems for treating mental health and addiction are not the same as what they are in treating medical and surgical conditions. Uh, So state laws have uh, tried to address this disparity, and then federal law a couple times uh, has been uh, passed to try to uh, provide what we call parity or equity uh, to ensure that people who have mental health and substance use disorders can get treatment in a way that is comparable to the benefits that uh, the individual would receive uh, under you know, medical or surgical coverage. Uh, so that's one of the most important ways in which uh, policy is 
changing rapidly, uh, making a big difference. Um, but there are so many other things, of course, that impact uh, treatment um, coverage policies, for example, by insurance providers themselves, regardless of what the law is, uh, policies related to uh, states and, and local governments. Um, corporate policies actually have an impact as well. So uh, a lot uh, that influences this field, and this field is very unique in that regard. I know there's no other kind of like brain disorder that we have public policy for. We don't have a public policy for epilepsy or um, traumatic brain injuries. Right. But for whatever no. reason, we've, we've really made um, these two brain diseases a criminal issue. Yes, and, you know, there's excessive rationing of healthcare in, in these fields. Uh, you know, it's like sort of unheard of, and it's, it's sort of strange to think that, you know, there are limits on how much health care a person can get and by uh, law or, you know, by rule in some places. And, you know, for example, there's a lifetime cap on um, certain maintenance medications for people who have opioid use disorders. Well, there's certainly no a lifetime cap on the amount of insulin a person can have with diabetes, right? Uh, but or even, Lipitor. You know, that... <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so... Uh, you know, there's there's still a lot of work to be done, but I do think that we've uh, made tremendous progress. In fact, you know, just uh, I guess last month, uh, the uh, HHS Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services announced that uh, federal law that does uh, advance parity uh, in coverage for mental health and substance use disorders. They proposed extending those uh, protections to people who are in Medicaid. Uh, or in the uh, CHIP, the Child Health Insurance Program, so that, again, more people will have the benefits of parity and equity and coverage so that mental health and substance use disorders will be treated similarly to medical and surgical benefits. Well, I think part of the contributing, um, I guess, event, or it's not really an event, but it's a philosophical difference within the substance use disorder profession about how people should be treated and is absence-based the only effective treatment, is harm reduction a viable form of treatment, and there's such debate within the um, substance use disorder professional community that it leaves us wide open for the external um, governing bodies to come in and make these decisions for us, whether it's based on science and medical knowledge or just people's bias. Definitely. You know, I think that's commonly the case where you know, in certain uh, professions or industries, if there's not agreement or there, if there's not self-regulation, uh, then someone else will step in and do it for that particular field. Uh, and that is, at, I think, a risk for the field of addiction treatment, um, you know, when you've got things that are going on that uh, are problematic and you're not addressing those problematic items from within, someone else from the outside is going to come in and do that, whether it be the insurance providers or government or both. And when we look at, the, in terms of harm reduction, we look at the use of Narcan for first responders or or is Narcan available to any treatment provider? Or we look at needle exchange programs or um, what's happening in um, southern Indiana around um, the outbreak of HIV. Yes, the, you know, there's so much going on. Um, and... The, the, in Washington, there's a great deal of talk about uh, making sure that there's access to naloxone 
Uh, that's typically a, a state-driven issue, but the federal government has come out uh, strongly in favor of extending access within the states um, to the rescue medication, naloxone, to reverse overdoses. And uh, so the question then becomes, uh, how much access do you give? Uh, is it a case where someone can walk into a nonprofit just sign a sheet and get the medication and go, or does it require counseling that would be provided by a trained uh, provider? Uh, and, you know, would there ultimately be a need for there to be referrals to treatment, uh, or do you just let somebody go on after the emergency department has come, after someone has been you know, brought back to life uh, after one of these incidents? So, that single area of policy related to access to naloxone um, is definitely the uh, uh, subject of a great deal of discussion in Washington. I was a part of a program put on by the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws, where they were trying to come up with a, a model law. And ultimately, uh, the, the work product has not yet come out, but what we expect to see from the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws is that they're going to have a, an array of options because the states are so varied on their approach to naloxone access. So they'll have some more conservative-oriented options, and then they'll um, also extend all the way up to the most liberal uh, types of options for naloxone access and uh, trying to incorporate the best practices in each of those models. Uh, so, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that things are really fast moving and it's hard even for great organizations like the National Alliance for Model State Drug Laws to uh, stay on top and remain, you know, at the, the head of leadership. Um, and, and, and the concern is that people who are um, leading in a less than fully informed way might not be doing things in the best way. Well, I, I know in New Hampshire this year is the first time we've had more deaths related to drug overdoses than traffic accidents, and um, they're expecting drug overdose deaths to triple by three three times this year. You know, so uh, I don't. You just wonder why why is there why does it have to be so hard to get narc Narcan in our um, treatment setting? If a doctor orders it for a specific patient, it can be. Um, help for that patient, but our outreach team can't carry it on them for anybody that has an opiate disorder. So it can't be part of our first aid response, you know? Um, right. It, typically, it has to be uh, specific to a particular patient unless uh, it's with first responders. Uh, and so, yes, you know, they, I think that even some of the most uh, conservative individuals who might previously have been opposed to access to naloxone in a, in a more uh, unrestricted way are uh, reconsidering because of what uh, you said, Mary, that you know, we see that nationwide, in fact, the number of deaths from overdoses uh, is outpacing the number of deaths from car crashes and even firearms incidents. Uh, and so it, uh, people are desperate to do what it takes to uh, save lives. Um, and you had previously mentioned the outbreak of uh, HIV in Indiana. Uh, and I think that that is likely causing some people who uh, have you know, traditionally been opposed to needle exchange uh, to you know, reconsider in the event of what is such a, uh, a remarkable um, uh, you know, illustration of the harms of injection uh, drug use. Um, so again, things are moving really fast. Um, you know, the the uh, issue with the outbreak of 
HIV in Indiana raises a, a ton of other questions uh, from a policy perspective that uh, you know, we should we should all be discussing, and I think no one at this point is covering. Um, so, you know, why aren't the medications that uh, are being commonly melted and injected already formulated to be abuse deterrent? I mean, why is the FDA not um, more... Uh, aggressively encouraging that opioid uh, pain relievers, uh, all opioids, frankly, be reformulated uh, to be more abuse deterrent, so they're less susceptible to crushing and snorting or melting and injecting. Uh, you know, um, that's something that uh, needs to be a topic of conversation in the context of uh, what's going on in Indiana with the HIV outbreak. I think one of the other things, um, coming from a rural state like New Hampshire, um, you know, we were seeing opiate uh, addiction due to OxyContin long before they were seeing it, like in some of the bigger cities. And I think sometimes rural issues don't don't get the same amount of light sh- shown on them as urban issues when it comes to policy and trends. And we'll be uh, right I, back I, after this commercial, so you can respond to that. We'll be right back. Okay. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Running is one of the fastest growing sports with everyday people stepping it up and training for that next big race goal. The In-Flight Running Show with Coach Michael Merlino is your guide to running. Whether you're just getting started or training for the Boston Marathon, by paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to take your running to new heights and reach your next finish line with confidence. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Um, this is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And we are talking about legal issues in the treatment of addiction and substance use disorders with Michael Barnes, who is the managing attorney for DCBA Law and Policy in Washington, D.C. Um, just to tell you a little bit more about Michael, in his practice of law, he provides 
domestic kettle to businesses, not for profits, to professionals, fiduciaries, and individuals. He has served as primary legal counsel to national health care service providers um, during startup and stabilization stages, to international pharmaceutical manufacturing seeking U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval of new drug applications, and in his public policy practice, Barnes advises corporations and healthcare providers and national nonprofits on issues including prescription drug abuse, medication safety, and pain care. Um, so, Michael, before we went to break, I I wondered if there was a a real disparity between rural policy and urban policy when it comes to um, federal oversight or just people paying attention? I do think that uh, as far as paying attention, yes, and I, I don't know that it's necessary specific to mental health and addiction treatment, but when things happen in the rural areas, you don't have the media coverage, you don't have the, you know, the general population-centric uh, focus on what's going on, and so that might be a reason why you know, there's less attention to a certain of the uh, issues related to substance use that occur in uh, more rural areas. Uh, but there was an interesting New York Times article that came out about a week or maybe two weeks ago that actually um, discussed the uh, heroin use epidemic and uh, described that Whereas in the past, we as a nation used to measure the problems associated with substance use in terms of the crime uh, in the urban centers. And now that there is sort of a quiet um, unwillingness to talk about the presence of overdoses and deaths in rural and more suburban areas, and that we're measuring the impact of this societal problem by the number of deaths, uh, not even related to uh, crime uh, beyond you know what goes uh, you know on um, in trafficking the particular uh, substances and so yeah, the the problem that we're we're seeing now is that there uh, is a huge number of people I think over uh, seventeen thousand people who are overdosing on opioids uh, every single year and a lot of people because of the stigma that I uh, mentioned previously are unwilling to share their story. They might be embarrassed that a child uh, had an addictive disorder or they might be somehow feeling as though they were less than optimal parents. Uh, And so not a lot of people are willing to talk about this particular um, epidemic uh, when you think about uh, total overdose deaths being around 39,000 per year. Um, It's uh, extraordinary and there needs to be a greater focus on it, uh, both in communities, in the media, and of course among policymakers. You know, when I started in this profession in the late 70s and early 80s, opiate addiction was primarily due to heroin, and there was a great fear during the Vietnam War that a number of the guys would come back addicted to opiates, and that didn't happen um, because there, there wasn't the... It wasn't the environmental triggers for it. There also wasn't a plentiful supply when they came home. And um, and so it was characterized as an urban minority-driven addiction. And once in a while, you'd see somebody from suburbia or out in the country that had an opiate addiction. But it was usually somebody who had been spending time in an inner city. And and so, you know, there was a lot, everybody was afraid of, you know, junkies commit crimes to get money to get their fix. And and then when things started to change and we began to be flooded with um, uh, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Percocet, other opiates for the treatment of pain, 
this whole addiction exploded because it wasn't junkie, it wasn't dealers, you know, copying heroin and cutting it. It was uh, licensed medical professionals prescribing it at, you know, um, gross rates and, and over-prescribing it and not understanding the effect of the medication they were prescribing. So the whole face of opiate addiction changed. Absolutely. And you're right that uh, the prescribers really are the gatekeepers in our stream of commerce for the powerful controlled substance medications. And, you know, there are two classes of those uh, individuals who are prescribing controlled substances in the wrong way. One is the negligent, you know, perhaps ignorant group of individuals, and they need to be educated and rehabilitated through the professional licensing process. But then there are also the intentional bad actors, those who are operating pill mills uh, and, you know, just prescribing in a rogue way. And those individuals really need to be enforced against, uh, you know, by the public health authorities and then, of course, referred to law enforcement for criminal prosecution. Uh, And, you know, just like with uh, any other uh, profession, and as we discussed with the addiction treatment uh, field generally, prescribers also need to make sure that they are aggressively self-regulating so that they don't see more knee-jerk reactions from policymakers that are not necessarily the best approach to dealing with the inappropriate prescribing of controlled substances. That has happened in some places, and you've got uh, lawmakers who are making laws you know, without full information and, you know, frankly, uh, th- you know, taking approaches that are just really poorly advised and have an impact on the people who really do need medications uh, for pain or for uh, anxiety or sleeplessness or you know, addiction medicine um, itself. Um, so the uh, health care fields generally uh, need to make sure that they do a better job at educating encouraging the uh, use and, and uh, adherence to best practices and uh, prescribing standards and guidelines, uh, and then aggressively uh, rehabilitating those who are not doing things right and referring the criminal actors uh, to law enforcement for prosecution. If they don't do that themselves, uh, then we're going to see more knee-jerk reactions that will have a negative impact on all of us. You know, um, I'm a nurse, so I'm going to say this from from that perspective, but doctors never police themselves. I mean, I I don't think because you have a license to practice medicine, that means you should practice all medicine. And I think we put way too much uh, power on primary care physicians who have to know so much and have so little time um, to really build a relationship or understand their, their patients. And... Um, you know, I could never understand why when Suboxone was released, you only had to take a six-hour course. You didn't have to understand addiction at all. You just had to learn about the medication and how it worked. And to me, that was just gross negligence on the part of the government. And um, and as a result, you know, this this hasn't worked as well as everybody hoped it would. And I And I don't understand why we don't spend more time upstream looking at the prescribers and why are they allowed to prescribe everything just because they have a license? I mean, as a, as a lawyer, you can't do everything just because you have That's a law right. degree. That's right. And you know? I wouldn't dare, uh, you know, they're just, you know, I wouldn't dare to try to get someone out of jail, for example. I don't do criminal law. Um, and, you know, what's interesting about prescribing, if you look at controlled substances, is that under the law, 
controlled substances are by definition uh, distinct in that they pose a greater risk, and that is why they are scheduled under Federal and State Controlled Substances Act as uh, controlled substances because you need to have the, the additional rules and regulations to accommodate the risks of those particular medications. Additionally, when you're prescribing controlled substances, which again, by definition, carry greater risks, it makes sense that legally there would also be a greater duty. And currently, that's not reflected in federal law. So you can prescribe controlled substances under federal law without having had any additional education beyond that which is provided uh, required by the state for your licensure. I think, and in fact, I've written an um, article about this that was uh, published in a, a law journal that it makes sense that because you've got a greater risk and therefore you have a corresponding greater duty, that for prescribers to get the registration to prescribe controlled substances, they should have to have some greater demonstration of education and competence or experience. Uh, and I, I also agree, Mary, with what you said about the medical profession not exactly being uh, all that assertive about regulating itself because proposals at the federal level that would require that in order to get a controlled substance registration, an individual would have to have greater education in the field of safer controlled substance prescribing and referrals to treatment, for example. Those proposals have really been uh, killed at the federal level by the large lobbying associations of the, the, you know, the uh, physicians who are more so generalists rather than you know, the organizations like the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which is made up of the specialists who have this training. They support this notion, but it's not going to happen at the federal level. And so you know, what uh, I've been working on with some of the organizations that um, I uh, represent is encouraging the implementation of prescribing education standards at the state level, and that is showing some success in places like New Mexico, for example. Well, that's some promising. Um, that's promising to hear. I, I think um, I've been around long enough that I've become a little cynical, and I think it's going to take a major lawsuit against some physicians before they'll actually change their behavior. Um, Yes, you know, I do think that there there is a role for the, you know the excessive or aggressive rather prosecution, both criminally and civilly, in cases where there's extreme behavior, because you need to have these uh, sorts of examples to make the prescribers realize that this is something that has grave consequences, not just to the patients. And oftentimes, I think it's easy for prescribers to say, well. I, I can't control what a patient does with the prescription that I give. You know, I talk to the patient, but whether or not the person followed my advice is up to him or her. Um, we're seeing that there are prosecutions for murder now for people who are prescribing controlled substances in a rogue way. Um, there are uh, civil lawsuits that are trying, you know, that, that uh, are trying to recover damages, and that has an impact, of course, on the insurability of individuals. Uh, so if you lose your insurance because you've been sued so many times for rogue prescribing, that's a good sign that, uh, you know, perhaps it's time to give up that particular uh, practice of medicine. Um, so these uh, aggressive enforcement actions at the civil and criminal levels are uh, useful because they set good examples that there are consequences for inappropriate prescribing behaviors. What we want to make sure, though, is that those sorts of uh, aggressive 
um, approaches are limited to the extreme bad cases. We don't want to have just someone who didn't know better, truly ignorant, uh, aggressively prosecuted. Um, that person needs to be rehabilitated as a prescriber instead through the state licensing process uh, because we don't want to ensure that people are so scared that they outright uh, refuse to prescribe controlled substances for the people who legitimately need them and they're, you know, therefore um, make it hard for people who need these medications to access them. That's going too far. And we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Healthcare today is full of complex questions and even more complex answers. On top of making choices about healthcare, how do you know that you're making the right choices? Natural medicine or conventional medicine? Should I seek a second opinion? What if I just don't feel right about the treatment I am recommended? Get the answers by tuning in to Rising Through It with Dr. Danielle McDuff, live every Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Michael Barnes, who's Managing Attorney at DCBA Law and Policy in Washington, D.C. Um, Michael, one of the things that I know confuses our families a lot, and I think sometimes confuses other practitioners, we have the Federal Confidentiality Law, 42 CFR, that regulates confidentiality for people with substance use disorders. And then there's another, in most states, there's another law that covers people with mental health um, disorders. And then there's HIPAA. So could you kind of explain to our audience a little bit about all these confidentiality laws and how they affect treatment and policy? Sure, yes. Uh, So... HIPAA is the general uh, protection of an individual's uh, private and protected health information, and you get those forms typically when you go to any licensed healthcare provider, and uh, they basically explain what information they share and for which purposes. And then, 
if you are going to be authorizing the sharing of information in a way that's not already permitted by statute, then you have to give uh, permission for that particular use. Uh, and 42 CFR Part 2 is a federal regulation that protects the private health information of individuals who are in federally associated uh, drug abuse treatment programs. So that would include those that receive federal funding or even those that are um, run by a physician who prescribes under the Controlled Substances Act and uses medications for the treatment of uh, opioid dependence, for example. So those particular programs are subject to the privacy requirements of 42 CFR Part 2. And what that has meant in my practice of law is that when government licensing entities come, for example, and uh, say the DEA comes to a particular uh, healthcare treatment provider's office and says, show me your records, that um, it's, it, it is possible and the, the physician should at that point say, you're going to require a court order. Uh, this administrative subpoena by the DEA, for example, is not adequate because my patients have extra protections under 42 CFR Part 2. Uh, and so it uh, just really helps to prevent, again, the exacerbation of both the social and the structural stigma against people who have a substance use disorders. And I think it also helps the treatment providers feel more comfortable about providing treatment without excessive government uh, interference and oversight in a way that might be um, you know, otherwise influence the, the healthcare provider's decisions. Uh, so these are um, 42 CFR Part 2 is a really good and uh, strong means of protecting people's privacy. What I do see as a flaw in uh, this particular regulation is that there's no way for uh, an individual to enforce his or her right. It's, you know, there's no private right of action under 42 CFR Part 2, which means that if your rights have been violated, you really can't sue. Uh, it's up to the government to the, do the enforcement. And, and that, I think, is a shortcoming of the law. And is there any special protection for people that have HIV or, or that are HIV, HIV positive or that have um, AIDS? Uh, you know, I only know anecdotally um, that there are uh, different uh, record-keeping uh, procedures. Mary, you might uh, know as a as a nurse and a treatment provider better than I do. Um, you know, I uh, I can't speak with specificity about those particular requirements, but I know that uh, some do exist. Uh, do you have experience with that, Mary? Well, in New Hampshire, we had to have a separate uh, record if somebody was HIV positive or had AIDS, and it was kept locked in a different space than um, their, their general record. Yeah, that, that's my understanding of uh, what those protections are, but I, I'm not familiar with the specifics. Uh, it's not something that I've dealt with in my daily practice. Um, so when we when we think about all of this in terms of confidentiality and um, how on one hand it's it's there to protect people, it also can be a barrier to providing effective treatment as well because oftentimes what we know about recovery is that there it takes a village, right? So there may be 
somebody, there may be somebody that has a primary care physician, there may be somebody who has uh, a probation officer, there may be somebody who has um, a vocational specialist, and then they have an AA sponsor, and so, I mean, it, you know, it gets cumbersome to try to have a really good recovery plan that's inclusive with, with all of the regulations. Right, so you're referring to the ability to share information with the people yeah. who are part of the recovery support network? Right. Yes. right. Uh, you know, that, that's something that, as I mentioned, I suppose it would be possible to, you know, while the person is still in active treatment, get permission, written permission for that specific type of sharing of information with, you know, specific individuals to the extent that you don't have that uh, form of uh, permission, then yes, I do think it can be difficult to be able to uh, help individuals who might be struggling with their treatment or recovery, for example, um, and get them back on track. Another uh, example of where some of these um, protections you know, are considered to be problematic uh, relates to when people are taken to the emergency department for overdoses, and thankfully the overdoses result in a you know, non-fatal uh, event and the person is able to be discharged, should there be referrals to treatment or should there be a notification of um, the next of kin or you know, the loved one that this has occurred? You know, I have uh, worked with Karen Perry, who is the founder of the NOPE Task Force down in Florida, that's Narcotics Overdose Prevention and Education Task Force. And, you know, her um, advocacy in favor of uh, the Overdose Death Prevention Act in the states is that if, in her case, with her son who ultimately passed away of an overdose, if she had known and had been able to be engaged in the course of treatment uh, in the past couple of times, the last couple of times that uh, there were non-fatal overdoses, she might have been able to help prevent that death. And uh, so, you know, there is, um, in some regards, a downside to the patient protections, uh, and that's why, um, you know, there there is at least legislation in Florida and uh, possibly soon in Massachusetts that would expressly authorize, authorize the sharing of information uh, on the case, in the case of a non-fatal overdose with the next of kin and allow for referrals to treatment. Um, and so I think that sort of legislation at the state level makes good sense. Yes, it makes very good sense. Um, what, what is, where are we with parity? I mean, in terms of enforcing it and what can we enforce and um, is it so, going to really uh, make a difference? Yeah, as I, I started out uh, discussing parity, the Obama administration has really done a great deal to advance the parity and equity in treatment benefits for, pe- for people who have mental health and substance use disorders. Uh, and so basically uh, what uh, the Obama administration has done by regulation is uh, combining the federal parity and equity laws with the Affordable Care Act so that most of the uh, health care uh, insurance uh, uh, providers are required uh, by extension of the federal regulation uh, to make sure that the benefits that are provided to people who have mental health and substance use disorders are comparable to the medical and surgical benefits that they would receive under a particular plan. Where we are now is that there are still efforts, aggressive efforts, by the insurers and even by state uh, Medicaid providers 
to avoid those requirements um, to offer equitable and, um, and the benefits that are in parity with medical surgery, uh, surgical benefits. And so it's really up to consumers and their healthcare providers to exercise their rights under the law and to push back and to um, appeal the denials of care and then to send letters to the state entities that are overseeing uh, insurance uh, plans in the state or even appeal it ultimately to the federal government so the federal government can make sure that parity is actually being enforced in specific uh, instances where insurance providers and state Medicaid plans are not willing uh, to do what is required by the law. So with respect to parity, what is most important now, I think, is for consumers in the mental health and substance use disorder uh, field to ensure that they receive benefits that are equivalent to those that would be provided for medical and surgical uh, care and for the healthcare providers to ensure that you know, they connect the consumers with the resources to uh, appeal, uh, help them to know, you know what the state entity is that could uh, help process a claim or, or appeal, um, help them send the information to the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. We've got to be aggressive uh, because we know that uh, the health plans are going to you know, do what they can to avoid providing this sort of coverage as a means of cost savings. Um, but that's no longer consistent with the law. So there's hope. There is, yes. You know, there have been some recent cases that have come out under both um, state and uh, federal laws where the government is going in and making uh, insurance companies right their wrongs. Uh, and I think New York has been a state where there's been aggressive enforcement against the insurers that are breaking the law, and uh, we're seeing that it is having an impact. Uh, and then the Obama administration does also get credit for continuing to try to extend the uh, benefits of parity and uh, equity, having most recently, just last month, uh, issued a uh, draft rule that would extend the requirements of parity to the Medicaid and uh, uh, child health insurance program beneficiaries, so uh, the CHIP beneficiaries uh, and Medicaid beneficiaries would also have the same sort of uh, benefits that are uh, uh, accessible to people under private plans, uh, thanks to the Affordable Care Act combined with the um, Obama administration's interpretation of the uh, Equity and uh, Parity and Equity Act. So the Obama administration remains aggressive uh, in trying to extend the principles of parity, and it does get uh, credit for that. You know, um, I heard Patrick Kennedy speak, uh, I guess it was last week, two weeks ago at a conference um, here in Florida, and he was talking about, um, he's not talking about stigma or discrimination anymore, he's talking about enforcing the law and that his focus Absolutely. is going to be on the enforcement of this law and, and a couple of the other laws that have been passed to help provide equity for people with um, brain diseases. So that, that's a good thing. Um, before yeah, we go definitely. to commercial, can, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you or they want to engage your services? Or Well, thanks for asking. So um, my firm's website is dcbalaw.com, and uh, we're on Twitter at DCBA Law. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Barnes. Uh, if you look me up, Michael Barnes, DCBA Law on LinkedIn. All of those ways, I certainly would appreciate the opportunity to connect and uh, 
you know, I, I think that those platforms provide sort of a nice address book at the very least so that if you know one day that uh, you might be interested in reaching out to me, uh, you'll know where to find me. So I hope that uh, the listeners will take a moment and try to connect with me either via uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or uh, contact me through the website. Uh, it's DCBA Law. Okay, and we'll be right back after this last commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, Join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Transformational Healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about legal issues and addiction treatment with Michael Barnes, who's the managing attorney at DCA Law and Policy in Washington, D.C. And um, I, I guess uh, if we want to give equal time to um, questionable practice, I think we need to talk a little bit about um, our own behavioral health care industry. And I don't know whether this is a legal issue or, or an ethical issue, but when it comes to truth in advertising, I know that a number of our uh, families that we've worked with have gone through to other treatment providers who say they do dual disorders, but they really don't treat people that have severe and persistent mental illness. So um, I think that 
that families don't really understand. I don't know how much consumer protection there is for families for that, and I and I often wonder if if you have a family member who has failed at multiple attempts at recovery for opiate addiction, and then you pay, I don't know, $35,000 for them to go to a treatment program that won't do opiate-assisted treatment, you know, is that fair advertising? I mean, is that, is that a legal issue? Is that a moral issue? And I just got to ask your opinion on that. Yes, these are big issues, and definitely there's the ethics, but there is an element of uh, law to these sorts of advertising and marketing claims. What, what I've seen that does, uh, to me, uh, really uh, grotesque uh, as you know, what would appear to violate principles of fairness in advertising uh, is the claims of a cure for addiction uh, and these outlandish claims of certain high percentage success rates with no explanations of how those success rates are determined and at what stage of treatment. Um, and then, Mary, as you mentioned, you know, just the qualifications, you know, how do you really verify whether or not a particular program is truly qualified to uh, treat co-occurring disorders, for example. Generally, um, you know, federal and uh, state uh, consumer protection laws can apply in these sorts of scenarios, and I think that it's important that when someone believes that a particular uh, treatment provider is uh, not being truthful in advertising and marketing, that you know, that sort of uh, concern should be drawn to the attention of the consumer protection entity in the states. And typically, that is the attorney general, um, because you have you know your own uh, moral obligation to try to help people from uh, engaging from uh, suffering from the same sorts of uh, misinformation. Um, and you know, there should be an adequate um, application of current laws. There's no need for additional changes in law. There just needs to be an enforcement of current laws to weed out the bad actors that are claiming that they can do things like cure what is a chronic brain disease, for example. So um, th- you know, this is also an area where I think the profession itself can do a better job at self-regulation and can do a better job at uh, weeding out or at least isolating the bad actors. Uh, so, for example, you know, if you've got currently a membership association uh, that is, you know, uh, where treatment providers can go and be a part of what would be their industry association, but if there's no certification process, maybe it makes sense uh, for there to be a higher standard of a certification process because anyone can say, oh, our program is a member of this association, and a consumer doesn't know how that's different from certification and could assume it's certification. So the, the industry itself can do a better job and should because alternatively, you might have uh, government stepping in and getting involved, and that's going to be something that uh, will certainly not be well-tailored to the field. Well, we also have other uh, business practices that um, some some people there's a referral kickback. So if I refer somebody to a certain program, I will get a percentage. I will get a fee, like a finder's fee, for that. Uh, whether that's the best treatment program for the individual or not. There's also I went to a conference a number of years ago, um, and the, there was a, a workshop that, that told providers how you could maximize your um, recovery of dollars through urine testing. And, yeah. and there is blatant, like this is what you need to do to maximize the benefit. And this is the, the company you can work with. You know, it's like, I don't know, $25 for us to do a, to administer a urine 
cup. And we just put that in as part of our cafeteria rate. But, you know, you can send it out for $200, $225 and then get a percentage of that money back to the treatment center. Yes. You know, I uh, mentioned you know, the the rogue prescribers and pill mills who profiteered off of the you know, abuse of opioid pain relievers. Uh, and a lot of those pill mills have been shut down. But there's a similar now uh, profiteering sort of activity in the field of urine drug testing now taking advantage of the epidemic that many of these same people helped to create. And they're operating what they're referred to as like liquid gold labs uh, where they're billing multiple times for the same specimen up to a couple of thousand dollars or more each time. And what is most frustrating about this is that it's increasing the costs of healthcare generally and it is uh, resulting in a denial of care for urine drug testing, even in cases when it is necessary, because insurers are having a hard time figuring out what's legitimate and what's not. They just see that these bills are uh, resulting in literally billions of dollars of uh, health care costs per year, and they've got to do something about it. So they're outright just saying no, no urine drug testing. What needs to happen, though, is that there needs to be a greater enforcement of existing rules. Again, there's no need for uh, additional state or federal laws here. Current federal law prevents the types of things like uh, kickbacks and uh, self-referrals. Many of the schemes that are set up around urine drug testing are prohibited by federal law. But what's happening is the companies, the, the urine drug testing laboratories or the middlemen or the service providers that are helping people set up their own labs are giving these legal opinions that are conducted by their own counsel. And they might try to exploit what is a loophole in the law, maybe consistent with the black letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Uh, so I always encourage um, any professional treatment provider or uh, healthcare provider generally Get your own legal counsel and never take the advice of someone else who's trying to sell you something or that person's counsel. There's clearly a conflict of interest there. And also make sure that you're doing what is always in the best interest of the patient first. There's no problem with making a living, but when your ability to um, make judgments in the best interest of a patient is affected by your willingness or your desire to make money, then there's a problem and you need to reconsider the actions you're taking. the most important um, legal issue facing addiction treatment at this time? Oh, there's, there's uh, so much. Um, I mean, we've covered you know, many of the important uh, legal issues affect, affecting addiction treatment. I think one of the big issues that is getting a lot of discussion in Washington, D.C., is that we've seen that uh, in response to the opioid abuse epidemic, there has been a reduction in the supply of opioid medications available for abuse, but there hasn't been a corresponding reduction in demand. So there haven't been adequate interventions and referrals to treatment. So people have effectively shifted substances to heroin. Uh, And so all of this has resulted in a greater need for medication-assisted treatment uh, to help people who have opioid use disorders but current law provides that um, physicians who prescribe buprenorphine medications are limited to 30 patients at a time in their first year or 100 patients at a time thereafter. And so the people who are truly specialists in the field of addiction medicine 
really should be seeing more individuals than just 100 at a time, and they can't. I met a physician just last week at the conference of the American Society of Addiction Medicine who said one morning she opened the newspaper and saw the face of a patient of hers who had come in seeking treatment using buprenorphine medications for opioid dependence, and she looked at the headline, and it was an obituary. The person had died on a wait list waiting for treatment. And so the, the question that we're dealing with in Washington now is how do you allow the qualified practitioners of addiction medicine with experience who follow the best practices to provide care to more than 100 individuals without exacerbating what is also problematic, which is the rogue prescribers who are not following best practices and are operating the new form of pill mill, the new buprenorphine pill mill. So some of the proposals that uh, I've seen come out are you might uh, not apply the patient limit to women who are pregnant or to people with five years stable recovery or people whose daily dose of buprenorphine might be two milligrams or less. Another really interesting proposal would be that if the medication is implanted or injected and you know, not in pill form, never reaches the hands of the consumer, uh, then that particular medication and the individuals uh, who are taking that medication wouldn't count toward the limit. So I think that um, the federal government has already stated that it is, the HHS is looking at how to increase access to buprenorphine-assisted treatment, and there are ways to do it without exacerbating diversion and abuse. Um, so the next step is, I think, to do that in a meaningful way. And thank you so much. This has been a great hour. It's flown by, and um, thank you for all that you're doing to help us um, have parity and just have better consumer protection. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.